Hi, this is Craig Robinson from Ways to Win. And support for this podcast comes from Invesco QQQ, the official ETF of the NCAA. Invesco QQQ is proud to sponsor this episode and even prouder to provide access to innovation for the last 25 years. Basketball has had innovations over the years, too. We're seeing the game played in new ways every day. Learn more at Invesco.com slash QQQ. Let's rethink possibility. Invesco Distributors, Inc. Here's a cool fact. A crocodile can't stick out its tongue. Another cool fact? You can get short-term health insurance for a month or just under a year in some states. United Healthcare short-term insurance plans are designed for people who are between jobs, coming off their parents' plan, or turning a side hustle into a full-time gig. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage with access to a nationwide network of doctors and hospitals. Get more cool facts about United Healthcare short-term plans at uh1.com. This episode is brought to you by the Center for Addiction and Mental Health here in Toronto. Cutting-edge, state-of-the-art, compassionate facility. Right now, it is Mental Health Awareness Week. This is the time when they need you most. This is the time when you can make a real difference when it comes to doing something about the mental health crisis and the devastating opioid epidemic, the overdose epidemic that we're currently experiencing, losing 20 people every day. They need your help. Donate at camh.ca slash CanadaLand to help CAMH treat addiction and build hope. This episode of Canada Land is brought to you by Douglas, a mattress that is trusted by more than 200,000 Canadians from coast to coast to coast. It's a great mattress at a very reasonable price point. Comes with a 20-year warranty and a great deal for our listeners. Douglas is giving you a free sleep bundle with each mattress purchase. Get the sheets, pillows, mattress, and pillow protectors free with your Douglas purchase today. Visit douglas.ca slash CanadaLand to claim this offer. That is douglas.ca slash CanadaLand. Well, it's been a hell of a week uh, since last week's show where I spoke with Andrew Mitrovica about Rex Murphy, about Rex Murphy's conflict of interest, about the tens, probably hundreds of thousands of dollars that Rex Murphy has collected from oil sands companies to speak at their conferences while simultaneously delivering pro-oil sands editorials on CBC's The National and in his column at The National Post. We discussed it on the show last week. Other people were writing about it, and the issue got some traction. I am not going to say that the issue blew up because you would not have read about it in the National Post or in the Globe and Mail or through the CBC, but iPolitics.ca and Press Progress and this program and its blog, the Vancouver Observer... Huffington Post Canada, Canada's small, nascent digital press and independent press has been pushing this. Bit by bit, awareness of this issue grew. Meanwhile, myself and Andrew Mitrovica and others have been trying to get the parties in question on the record to directly ask them some questions about this. Now, you'll remember last week that Andrew Mitrovica was not able to get any kind of dialogue with the CBC. Initially, when he asked, does Rex Murphy contribute to the national? They said, no comment. Uh, it hasn't gotten much better than that since. 
While Jennifer McGuire, the editor-in-chief of CBC News, has made some murmurings that maybe they're going to revisit their conflict of interest policy, Chuck Thompson, the CBC's press flack, suggested that we shouldn't hold our breath because really all of this noise about Rex Murphy is just coming from the Sierra Club, the environmentalist group, anyhow. Peter Mansbridge picked up on that in a tweet as a reason why he doesn't have to answer any questions about this. Which is news to me. I must have uh, missed the membership kit that they sent me. Not a member of the Sierra Club. But anyhow, nothing new there. No one at the CBC has made themselves available to any kind of open interview about this. And Rex Murphy throughout the week remained totally silent about this until his column this past Saturday. It's quite something. If you can, read it before you go on with this podcast. I will throw up a link on CanadaLandShow.com in the show notes. The TLDR of that column is essentially that Rex is the victim here, that his journalistic reputation is being insulted by some bloggers trying to shut him up with vicious blog posts. Some bloggers. I take great pride in that epithet, but that is his argument that he is trying to be silenced, but he won't be silenced. He has done nothing wrong. He will continue to act just as he has acted in the past. And that's that. And yet somehow he avoids actually saying what he's done. Whatever it is that he's done that is perfectly okay, that he's going to keep on doing, he does not disclose. He does not actually say that he has taken oil sands money. And at no point does he address that this might not be about people trying to silence him, but about a conflict of interest, that he has two competing interests that might be at odds with each other and that perhaps his readers have a right to know. That is not mentioned in the column, which is something you can do when you do not give interviews and simply craft a response. You can frame the issue any way you want, as Rex Murphy has done and as the CBC has done. I believe the hope is still that this hasn't reached the mainstream press and it won't and that this can be kept under wraps. Neither Rex nor the CBC are talking about this, but the National Post is. In a moment, you will hear my interview with Jonathan Kay, Rex Murphy's editor, the comment section editor at the National Post. Wait for it. This episode is sponsored by BetterHelp. Uh, It's amazing the things that we tell ourselves to talk ourselves out of getting help. Anybody who's actually gotten help knows that the process of getting things off your chest, of taking your stressors, your problems, and just like not letting them be bottled up, working through just conveying them to somebody, half of the battle is just doing that. You unburden yourself. And you know what? If you have a real mental health professional, no, they don't have magic bullets or magic words that make it all go away. But often they can help you see things a little bit differently and guide you to strategies or tools or to a new perspective that actually does help. As the largest online therapy provider in the world, BetterHelp can provide access to mental health professionals with a wide variety of expertise in mental health. Because you listen to this podcast, you get 10% off of your first month at BetterHelp.com slash CanadaLand. That's BetterHelp.com slash CanadaLand. This episode is brought to you by the Center for Addiction and Mental Health. Right now, there is an opioid crisis. Right now, there is a mental health crisis. But right now, it is Mental Health Week. And what that means is you can do something about these crises. You can help people. You can help CAMH save lives. They offer treatment with dignity, and they are doing cutting-edge 
research. I don't know if anybody listening to this is untouched by this crisis. You can see it in the downtown of every city in this country. You certainly feel it in Toronto. This is not something happening to other people. These are our friends. These are our communities, our families. We are all touched by addiction. We are all touched by the mental health crisis, and we all share responsibility to do something about it. Helping CAMH is something you can do about it. Help change mental health care forever. Your support will help CAMH build a future where nobody is left behind. Donate at camh.ca slash CanadaLand to help them treat addiction and build hope. Well, I feel absolutely unconflicted about Canada Land's sponsor, FreshBooks. Their product is great. If you are a freelancer, a small business, a contractor, it is the best way to invoice your clients. It is the best way to deal with your taxes. It's the best way to track your time. It is painless. You can try it out for free. Check it out, freshbooks.com. Before we begin, John, I just want to say that the CBC, the National Post, and Rex Murphy have all been asked to answer some basic questions and openly discuss this topic. You are the only one who has accepted. So, so thank you for joining me today. Uh, my pleasure. Uh, I'm delighted to be on your show. Uh, let's start simple because we actually still don't have some of the basic information here. This, this topic has sort of been evolving and there's been all this commentary, but we don't have some basic facts. Do you know whether or not Rex Murphy has in fact been paid by oil sands companies? I mean, it seems kind of obvious, but he, he actually didn't come out and say that directly in his column today. Uh, yeah, he's he's done a number of gigs, and uh, he has uh, he's done all sorts of paying speaking gigs, including it is my understanding uh, from groups of, uh, affiliated either directly or indirectly with uh, Canadian oil companies. Okay, you know, one had to kind of read between the lines because it, it wasn't the most information packed column. He focused on this one event and said, "Well, it was sponsored by a law firm, and there were First Nation leaders there. Yes, there were oil executives there, premiers, and other people." The implication seems to be that this, you know, he's he's denying that this was an oil sands event. But then, of course, that begs the question: What about the other twenty-four events in question? So, it is good to get that confirmed and on the record because it, it isn't yet. Further to that, can you confirm that number of twenty-five or, or how much he gets when he when he speaks? I, I'd love to ask him this directly, but but I can't talk to him, so I got to talk to you. Uh, I don't know where that number of twenty-five comes from. Uh, I think the Press Progress that website they they did a lot of Google searches of, of keynotes, and and that's what they came up with. Okay, uh, I'll have to take their word for it. Um, my understanding is that uh, from speaker bureaus, a guy of Rex Murphy's stature probably would charge anywhere between three or four thousand and twenty or thirty thousand for a major speech. Uh, I don't know. I couldn't tell you whether that number twenty-five is correct. Uh, it may be. Uh, the guy's probably given thousands of speeches over his lifetime. I do know that he's not being disingenuous when he indicates that. If he gets a paycheck from a speaking gig, he doesn't necessarily know that it's coming from this or that company. Um, you know, I gave a speech at the Fraser Institute a couple months back. Was paid fairly decently for it. And, you know, not Rex Murphy money, but you know, pretty decent money. And then when I gave the speech, when I was introduced, the guy said, "Thanks to Jonathan Kay for coming to give the speech. And by the way, uh, this event and this speech is made possible by." such and such a donor or such and such an institute or such and such a partnership. And it may be a donor or an institute or partnership that I've never heard of. And I've given a number of speeches like that. So I don't want uh, you or your listeners to draw the inference that, that Rex or anybody else is necessarily hiding things when he says that 
when he speaks at an event, he may not know ultimately exactly who is paying him. But like every other journalist, um, you know, his opinions are what puts food on the table. So he will write for money. He will appear on TV for money. And occasionally he will give speeches for money, as we all do when we get the opportunity. As I do as well. But again, I think that we can say without splitting hairs and with clarity, he has been paid thousands of dollars by oil sands companies. I I doubt he would. He's not on the show with us, but I doubt he would deny that. Okay. You know, we spoke about this uh, on the phone earlier in the week. And uh, in that conversation, we talked about whether or not the amount matters. And, you know, I asked you if uh, your readers have a right to know when they're reading a Rex Murphy column opining about the oil sands, do they have a right to know whether or not he's being paid by big oil? And you said that, you know, the amount might make an impact. And, And I think what you said was that, yes, if it's four or five figures, I think readers might have a right to know. And I think that over the years, it might be closer to six in Rex Murphy's case. Do you still feel that way, that your readers have a right to know that he's being paid by big oil? Uh, In theory, they do. When you say big oil, it sounds very nefarious. But in his last column, Rex Murphy indicated that his most common speaking gig over the years has been to teachers associations. And no one makes a big fuss uh, over that because people like teachers. Um, I'm not sure I would feel comfortable every time Rex Murphy writes a column that touches on the subject of public education – By the way, Rex Murphy has given 17 speeches or 37 speeches or 43 speeches over the last 50 years, which is how long he's been a public speaker, on the subject of education. So just so you know, he appeared in Moncton 18 months ago giving a speech to the Moncton Teachers Association about such and such. Readers would have access to a database of every single speech he's ever delivered on every single subject. In practice, is that going to happen with Rex or any other journalist? Probably not unless it is demonstrated to editors that his dominant income source comes from a single sector of the economy and he gives speeches on a regular basis to them and that's more or less become his vocation. That's not the case with Rex. And to be honest, for any journalist who that does become the case with, chances are they would become a full-time lobbyist. They'd they'd give up the the relatively non-well-paying job of writing columns and simply become a full-time lobbyist or full-time spokesperson or something like that or a communications professional. Or the most obvious indicator that they had become a shill for any given industry is that their columns would become terrible. Because when people become shills for a particular industry or for a particular political party, the first indicator you have of it is that their writing dies because propaganda is the enemy of good writing. And that hasn't been the case with Rex. You know, he's written about every subject under the sun, including the oil sands. And when he writes about it, uh, he writes about it with conviction. And I, as his editor, would be the first to know if the dynamo of his writing were anything else but his own editorial conviction. Okay, well, there's a lot to parse there, so let me get into it a little bit. Uh, first of all, I don't know that people are more concerned with the oil money than the educational money because they like teachers. I think it's because oil is a highly controversial topic in Canada, and if Rex were opining regularly about education, which I don't believe he does, and taking on very controversial aspects of it, and he was being paid by one party in a divided controversy within that field, then I think there might be the same emphasis on, on clarity and disclosure there. I also speak most commonly to educators, and I can tell you, though I speak to them more than any other group, they're the least lucrative uh, speaking clients that one might speak to. So as you suggest, the the most uh, relevant thing here is not how many talks he's given to a certain group, but how much he's made. And you're saying that now, before it was, if it was four or five figures, maybe readers have a right to know. Now you're saying if it's the majority of his income, readers have a right to know. So, so which is it? 
I think it's it's that the two are coterminous. If he's making four or five figures for twenty five speeches, I mean, if it really were true that you're making many hundreds of thousands of dollars over the course of the last couple of years from a single source, uh, as as the information you seem to be suggesting indicates, um, you know, that's probably something I would indicate. Um, my conversations with Rex suggest that 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 number is exaggerated. Why not just come clean with this stuff? If Rex, had, I mean, Rex said that he's been insulted, his reputation as a journalist has been smeared, and he's going to keep doing this. He's got nothing to hide. So why not make a clean breast of it? Because he keeps saying that, he, that we're trying to shut him up. Uh, these these bloggers are trying to shut him up, and there's a suggestion of some sort of environmentalist conspiracy. All I hear Andrew Mitrovica and, and myself and some others asking for is some clarity on exactly who's paying Rex and how much. If I'm putting myself in Rex's shoes and someone says, you know, show me every single speech that you've given to every single sector and, you know, he's going to send me in a week looking through for receipts and shoeboxes and tax returns and stuff like that. And I know that the information I'm going to provide is simply going to become grist for 500 blog posts about how I'm a shill for a particular industry, even though he's not. I sort of take his point that, you know, why is he going to become essentially a chartered accountant for the bloggers who want to hang him anyway because they've already decided that he's a shill for a particular oil sector. I don't think he has any obligation to it. I think his obligation, we would probably agree, is is not to bloggers, it's probably to readers. And if National Post readers or CBC viewers decided that they really couldn't trust Rex Murphy until he came clean on the dollar amount of all the speeches he gave to various sectors, then that would be you know, a decision someone like me would have to make. Say, well, you know, the readers aren't buying his stuff until we give them the information. That's a decision I would have to make. I'm actually not getting any letters from readers on this subject. Well, the topic hasn't been reported. Uh, well, it's been, re- been reported by you. It's been reported by... Um, Mitrovica on iPolitics.ca, me and my, my podcast. Right. I think you're absolutely right. This is not about satisfying bloggers or people on Twitter. And there are people from the environmental activist sector who are very angry about this, as, as one might predict. And let's not assume that I'm one of them. But I, I can tell you, John, I've been speaking to people who read Rex with interest, who and I, I do count myself among them, but people who agree with him. And they are very surprised to learn of this. And they don't know about it. And they do find it a problem. And and I think that it is not impertinent for me to suggest that the reason he doesn't want to disclose to those people, his actual readers, his base, before he goes on a polemic about how awful Neil Young is and how wonderful the oil sands are, the reason why he doesn't say full disclosure, I have been paid $100,000 or $80,000 or $200,000 by these very companies is because that would change the way that they receive that information. And I think that waiting for them to demand that information is a little bit disingenuous when they don't really have an opportunity to make that demand. Um, okay, uh, I'm. You know, let's look at the other side of the coin. Um, you know, as I indicated to you the, the last time we spoke, uh, sometimes when I write about the Middle East, I get invited to give speeches to this or that group about the Middle East. I started giving speeches on the subject uh, years ago. Would I want? to have at the bottom of every single column that I write about the Middle East or any other subject that I give speeches about, I have made $4,753 from speeches on the subject over the last seven years or $3,853 in speeches about this particular subject. I think that that would be a sort of cumbersome and distracting way to present myself unless there really was a reason to suspect that the only reason I wrote that column was to provide propaganda for a cause. And this is, I think, the root of the issue for me is what is the intention a person has when they write a column? If their intention is to give expression to a 
a point of view that they have and that they would have regardless of who is paying them to give what speech whenever, that to me is the most important thing. And if you tell me that Rex Murphy, well, he's only expressing this view because he's paid to give speeches on the subject, I simply don't believe that because I know from 15 years' experience as an editor that someone who is writing a column because they're paid to spread propaganda, they tend to write crappy columns. They tend to write columns that look like press releases. And Rex Murphy's columns are the opposite of press releases. They're highly impassioned. And he disclosed the reason for this uh, personal connection to the issue in his column on Saturday. Uh, His brother was given a second life professionally by the oil sands uh, when he went out from uh, Newfoundland to Alberta to work there, and he became a, a professional in the field. And Rex himself personally knows many people from Newfoundland who were out of work and got a second chance at life from the oil sands. There's a lot of people in Newfoundland who feel a great sense of gratitude to the oil sands, and Rex is one of them. Uh, and this is something he hasn't talked a lot about, but I asked him, it's something I know about because I, I know him personally, and I asked him to put it in his column, he did, and I think it made a great point because anyone who might have thought that Rex's interest in this issue is pecuniary, they only have to read that column, they know, okay, that's where the heartfelt conviction comes. Uh, and if you read that column, I think you're probably not going to care whether he's made X or 2X or 3X dollars from giving speeches in this, in this area because you'll, you'll know that the speeches and the columns and the CBC commentary, they all come from the same place, which is the editorial conviction he gained from his own insights and his own personal experience. Well, John, John, you said if I'm suggesting that he's only saying these things because he's being paid to, I never suggested that, and I'll, and I'll thank you not to, to put that. But, in, in, but that's in the only mouth. reason this inquiry is the absolutely only not. Is absolutely not. Well, the charge is not point for sure. Go ahead. Okay. The only reason that this inquiry is meaningful, and I'm not saying it's an illegitimate inquiry, but the only reason it would be meaningful is if you would infer from results that were given to you, aha, this result suggests to me that his intention in writing this column or delivering this communication was to further the interests of the people who paid him for the speeches. If that's not the thing you're looking to infer, then the disclosure is meaningless. I can't see any point in releasing the information. How is the disclosure meaningless? We're journalists. It's our job to inform the public. The, the charge is not corruption. The charge is conflict, an undisclosed conflict of interest. And I assume in laying that charge of conflict, let us assume for a second that he is absolutely pure of intention and, and his voice is his own, as he says. And, you know, I, I will explain to you the problem uh, it, it, it seems like you're asking why why this might be relevant. Well, let's say that Rex believes this in his heart and his soul. He's a free thinking person. His, his, his thoughts are his own. And they happen to be compatible with this industry. So they invite him to come speak. Let's say that everybody is honest. No one's trying to corrupt him. They're just uh, they, they love his opinions and they invite him to come speak. They pay him a lot of money. They do it again and again. Let's say that one morning he wakes up and he reads in the newspaper that a government study has found that contrary to every assurance from these oil companies, toxic chemicals in their reservoirs are seeping into the groundwater and polluting Athabasca, which is actually what was reported earlier this week. He would be able as a free thinker to change his mind on that topic. And now he has a very strong incentive to not change his mind. And whether that happens or not is between him and his conscience. But the idea that the reader should be denied that information, we're sitting here trying to parse whether or not Rex Murphy is true of heart. That's not my inference or my decision to make. I think that that's just something that people have to have adequate information to make up their own minds about. It's a fair point. My experience uh, empirically as an editor is that the main obstacle to columnists or any other pundit admitting they're wrong 
or in writing about contrary information to their long-held views has nothing to do with money. It has to do with ideological stubbornness. So, for instance, when it comes to global warming, if you look at, say, some of the people who have denied that global warming exists, um, and there are plenty of those in the National Post and other conservative publications, those people have stubbornly denied evidence that global warming is in fact happening. And if I know a lot of these people, and they don't make a cent off their global warming denial, but they cling to their views axiomatically. And the reason they do that is because the idea of giving up their long-cherished beliefs in the face of empirical evidence is, is worse than financial bankruptcy. It would connote a certain sort of shame that would be the worst thing professionally imaginable. And you could, you could substitute global warming for any number of issues. So based on my experience, that is the main obstacle to getting people to acknowledge information that's contrary to their long-established ideology. And I don't think the money has much to do with it. Because, by the way, the people who go into my field, typically they're not looking to, to get rich. Typically they're people who are smart enough to have made it in other fields. Because to be a pundit, like I don't want to be boastful about my profession, but most of the people I work with are pretty smart. And if they were really looking to make a lot of money, they probably would have joined a PR firm uh, or an investment bank uh, long ago. <laughs> Tell me about it. <laughs> yeah, no, okay. So they do what they're doing because they, they're passionate about their convictions. So – you know, most of the time that you see the conflicts of interest, it tends to be when you're talking about people who are affiliated with political parties or who are affiliated with large corporations that are trying to pump up the stock value or something like that. There are people who – they are not pundits, but rather they're representatives of institutions who are trying to dabble in a fairly obvious way in press release journalism. Yeah, but they're identified as such. If you run an op-ed from a, a CEO, then you, you identify him as the CEO of that company and everybody understands where he's coming from. Look, it's interesting, these things that you're saying, but it's so speculative and personal the way you're, you're presenting this. And I can tell you, you know, it, it doesn't happen that way like somebody's going to get into this with some like, you know, uh, very deliberate sense that they're going to be corrupt and they're going to be, a, you know, a shill. I, I, I know how seductive this money is. I know how seductive it is to write a blog post for $200 and then deliver a speech and get thousands of dollars. What I worry, like from your point of view as an editor, like aren't you afraid about compromising your newspaper's credibility? Like if this is okay, if that's the precedent that you're setting, then any number of instances where, and there are a lot of people who want uh, access to your column inches, you know, big telecom, right? Most journalists are very critical of big telecom in Canada. What's to stop them from finding one voice out there, a freelancer who makes a few hundred bucks saying something supportive genuinely about big telecom and then they flood him with speaking gig money and then, you know, bit by bit it's seductive and and, be, and before he knows it, he's in a situation where his living depends on continuing to write those kinds of editorials because if he stops, they're going to stop asking him to speak there. I mean, that 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 is not a crazy conspiratorial scenario. That could very easily happen. It's what I would suggest those companies do if I was their PR flack. It's not a crazy conspiratorial uh, scenario. And, and I'd say the most common way this happens is, for instance, when national governments take journalists on tours of their country and they wine them and they dine them. Uh, I remember you know, back in the day, uh, the, the Hong Kong Economic and Trade Office, around the time of the handover to China, they did this with plenty of journalists. They'd bring lots of people over to Hong Kong and to Beijing and Shanghai. And, and sometimes they would succeed. You know, and these, these journal, journalists would come back and they'd write you know, very upbeat things about all the great things that are happening in Hong Kong and on the east coast of China. And so dynamic. And you know, this does happen. Again, national governments often with lots of money throw, throw around. They do do this. However, in the case of corporations 
what tends to happen, A, is the people who they want to write for them tend to get very quickly absorbed into their professional PR staff. And the people who don't get absorbed into their PR staff and do try and present themselves as legitimate uh, independent journalists tend to write columns uh, that are so nakedly propagandistic that they don't even pass editorial muster. Never mind the conflict of interest. They're so bad from an ed- editorial perspective because you can smell the propaganda that they never make it into the column inches that we're talking about. And again, I, this sounds boastful, like, oh, you know, I'm an editor. I can tell the difference between propaganda and a heartfelt opinion. I don't think that's illegitimate what I'm saying. Uh, there aren't that many people who can make their living as a, as a professional pundit. And the ones that do are the ones that consistently avoid giving the odor of propaganda to their to their columns. Well, John, I, you know, you, you know we're going to hear from a lot of people who say that, that that is the definition of Rex Murphy and that he has been beating this drum very repetitively for some time now and that he is a big oil or an oil sands propagandist. I mean, that is a, a charge that's going to be laid against him. You realize that, I hope. To those people, I would direct them to the Rex Murphy columns that he's written in defense of the seal industry, which is probably one of the most hand-to-mouth you know, cottage industry industries there are in Canada. You know, there's there's very few sealers left. They don't make that much money. The products are boycotted in most countries. And yet, Rex Murphy has written column after column defending the the sealing industry, def- despite the fact that they have no money to give him, even if they wanted to give him money. Uh, and you know, his columns in defense of the sealing industry have been equally vociferous. Well, that's not not to say that he that he is if he is influenced by by this oil money. It's not to say it's to the exclusion of writing about anything else. True, but why would he waste his time? I mean, if he really was as corruptible as, as, as some of the tweeters I've, I've seen suggest, why would he waste his, his his column inches on an industry like sealing when he could be writing, you know, column after column about how great the oil sands are? Well, they, he, they, he actually <laughs> hasn't written that much about the oil sands. That's the thing. You know, in, of, of late he has because he has sort of a, a special umbrage about Neil Young. I mean, the thing about Rex Murphy you have to understand is that he hates – Activists who he perceives as bien pensant, naive left wing types. You know, it's a theme that's been in his column for years, uh, not just activists, politicians. And the thing that really got the bee in his bonnet about this uh, oil sense thing lately was Neil Young. You know, I think Neil Young could have gone off about a ceiling or gone off about uh, GMOs or something like that. And Rex Murphy probably would have written exactly the same column about him because. You know, Rex Murphy's thing isn't about oil. It's about naive activists who are telling us how to live our lives. And he's written many columns about that subject, never mind what the underlying industry is. It's all well and good. I I just got to raise an eyebrow at the idea that that what is preventing you from simply – including a sentence, forget the number, full disclosure, Rex Murphy has done numerous paid events for the oil industry, is the awkwardness of that disclosure. And I ask you again, not about those bloggers or, or tweeters, I, I ask you again about your your core subscription base. Do you think that they would raise an eyebrow if that disclosure, would it change the way that they perceive Rex to know that he has made tens, probably hundreds of thousands of dollars from the companies that he's writing about? I'm not sure it would change their perception. What I do think might happen, uh, first of all, by the way, I would have no objection, you know, if, if Rex were okay with it and we were able to apply the policy equally, I actually would, wouldn't have much objection to this policy in general. I, I don't think it's a crazy policy. But the only problem with that is to be fair about it. Then after every column I write about Israel, I would have to say, by the way, Jonathan Kay has received X number of dollars from speaking fees on the subject for the last, you know, during the last five or ten years. And, uh, you know, my colleague Matt Gurney, who's a specialist in, in military affairs, he'd, you know, the same boilerplate would appear after his column. 
And in the case of veteran columnists who have written about every uh, subject under the sun, they would have you know an extensive boilerplate, which eventually would you know be three or four par- paragraphs long, just covering all the speeches uh, or freelance articles they published on a given subject. So, you know, I see your point, but in order to be fair-minded about this and cover every columnist with the same boilerplate, uh, it would actually, I mean, it would would begin to get ridiculous because you'd have an 800-word column with 200 words of disclaimers at the end. Well, I think you only have to disclose if if the column is about topic X, you just say, I've spoken, I've taken money about topic X. And look, there's all kinds of solutions. And by the way, there are many journalists who have disclosure pages on their websites. There are many news organizations that have figured out ways of handling this awkward, terrible problem. And I have to tell you, there are journalists, and I'm one of them, who if I'm offered a speaking gig that is like very close to what I cover a lot, I'll turn it down just to spare myself that awkwardness. But I'm not getting moralistic on you. I'm just saying that in in the spirit of informed the public, which is our, our basic responsibility, I do think that this is relevant information to your readers, and you know, I, I think it, it's something that, that they should be able to make up their own minds about. I hope you agree with that. I think the, the, the best model, I mean, in general, I do agree. Uh, an interesting model was uh, David Pogue, who until recently was a, a technology reviewer for the New York Times, and he would often put in his columns when he was um, reviewing any kind of gadget, he would break the rhythm of his prose and say, uh, full disclosure, I recently authored a book about how to use such and such a gadget. And then he would go back to reviewing the related gadget in question. So if he had written a full book about a subject, uh, or if he had any kind of direct financial interest in a company, he would, he would, he would, uh, he would disclose that. Yeah, I, I think the public editor forced him to or something, but anyhow, yeah, yeah, he, he, he came around, yeah. On the other hand, I also know that that David Pogue, like a lot of these tech gurus, is also you know he's a popular public speaker and has spoken at all kinds of tech world events, right? And at those events, I mean anything goes. Like they're sponsored by you know everyone from Apple to Samsung to to who knows what. So if he were to have any kind of disclosure boilerplate at the end of his columns and list all the speaking engagements uh, and indirect freelance assignments he's had in relation to technology companies, you wouldn't know where to begin or end. And, and, and Pogue's a relatively young guy. Rex Murphy's been around for 50 years. You know, he's probably given thousands of speeches. I like the principled approach you're advocating, but for someone like Rex, it, it would, you know, who's written, who's spoken and written about every uh, subject under the sun, it, it would seem to be very difficult to implement, but also it would seem to apply to every columnist out there. And I think in practice, it would be very difficult. And even if you did implement it, it would just become a bunch of boilerplate at the end of uh, a column, which everyone would ignore anyway, in the same way that you and I ignore the boilerplate at the end of uh, an email message we get from a lawyer. Well, I would suggest that it's boilerplate that should go at the beginning of the column. And, and I also don't think that we're kind of making this up, you and I, right now in this conversation. This is, this is industry practice, and it does apply to every columnist. And most papers have very clear policies about, about this. Um, I, I don't know that we're going to come to a consensus here. I do have to ask you about something else, John. And this is something that in all this, what, one person on Twitter brought this to my attention. And I, have, I, I don't even know if this is a valid source, but maybe you can offer some, some clarity Somebody brought my attention to a presentation that supposedly the National Post did to the Canadian Association of Petroleum Producers. Uh, and it was a quote from your publisher, Doug Kelly, uh, saying that the National Post, I'm quoting here, is one of the country's leading voices on the importance of energy to Canada's economic well-being. We will work with CAP to amplify our energy mandate and to be part of the solution to keep Canada competitive in the global marketplace, the National Post will undertake to leverage all means editorially 
technically and creatively to further this critical conversation. Uh, that's an unsettling thing to read. Is that is that a true transcript of something that uh, the Post warranted to to Canada's oil companies? I actually did see that image uh, on Twitter, um, and unfortunately, the, the the publisher who was quoted there, I believe, it was Doug Kelly. Was yeah. That- yeah, uh, Doug Kelly is no longer the publisher of the National Post. Uh, he is now, I believe, the publisher of um, the company that publishes Toronto Life. So I don't have the opportunity to talk about it with him. And because I work in a very narrow section, I, I only edit the opinion pages. I don't work with any uh, industry partnerships like that. I actually don't know anything about that. I'm not denying it or affirming it. I just don't know anything about it. So you don't know anything about that. And, and this is, it's, it's important to get on the record. If there is some formal campaign to leverage the National Post's editorial machinery in support of Canada's petroleum industry, you don't know about that. Uh, it was it was never something that had anything to do with my particular department, the National Post. So that image and that quote, the only time I've ever seen it was on Twitter. I'm not saying it's it's not legitimate or it is legitimate, but I can't give your listeners any informed view on it because I don't know anything about it. Okay, yeah. I traced it back to a, uh, there's like a slideshow presentation somewhere on the web. I'll send you a link and maybe we could we could follow up on it later. But yeah, no, I mean, I, I think that people, you know, Canadians understand that the Post is a paper with uh, with a leaning and that's all well and good uh, to have a partisan newspaper. But I, I think it would surprise people if it turns out to be true that it is a paper that is actually in partnership with industry. It's a different story altogether, right? I, I can't. I don't know anything about it. I, anything I say would be just complete ill-informed blather. So I won't say anything about it. Uh, fair enough. Listen, John. Thank you again. I, I really feel like uh, we do need more conversation about this, and I and I appreciate your willingness to come and answer some questions today. Thank you. Thanks for having me on. I found it an intelligent dialogue. I appreciate uh, your listening to what I had to say. All right, that's your Canada Land Show. I do hope you liked it. Check out CanadaLandShow.com where I'm going to throw up a bunch of links to all the backstory on this, including that really strange slideshow attributed to Doug Kelly of The Post, which I will be following up on. Email me at jesse at jessebrown.ca. I'm on Twitter at jessebrown. I read everything you send me and I respond when I can. The next show will be up on Monday. If you like Canada Land, recommend it. 